Well, I mentioned how good it is for the first time in five months to be able to worship together corporately in here, but I know so many of our members are joining us online this morning, and so we are so grateful. Whether we are gathered here in the building or scattered throughout Middle Tennessee, we are the church, and it's so great to be able to worship together. And so one of the things we're going to do, and listen, I mean, the Holy Spirit lines up everything for his church well in advance, and so we had scheduled and planned, we do this about every eight or nine weeks, to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. And that means we celebrate God's finished work through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary and the new life, the eternal life, and the hope that we can have in Jesus. So for many of you in the room, you probably found this um, little cup and wafer that's in your chair. You might want to hold on to that. Uh, We'll get to that in just a moment. But if you're at home, the reason I mention this now, I want to give you a heads up. If you need to run to the kitchen and grab something out of the refrigerator, it's okay if it doesn't look like this. Matter of fact, this is so totally different than any way we've ever observed the Lord's Supper. So grab uh, elements, juice, bread, whatever you have there. We, We want you to join us. Uh, in that. Uh, We're going to be in 2 Timothy today. And so if you have your Bible, I I hope you'll join me in 2 Timothy. Uh, We have made our way through large chunks of scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, much of the book of John earlier this year. We walked through the Sermon on the Mount, verse by verse, and chapter by chapter a few months ago. And now we are walking verse by verse and chapter by chapter through 2 Timothy. A good, steady, feasting diet of the Word of God is going to build us up and prepare us for whatever's in front of us. And listen, I am so thrilled for us to walk through this text today because I believe there's somebody in the room today or one of our church members or somebody that's joined us online that needs to hear a word from God about how Jesus not only saves us from our sin and from brokenness and puts us into a relationship with himself, but he also places us into, he saves us and places us into a church family where we can love one another, care for one another, build one another up. And how many of us have needed that thus far in 2020? How many of us will need that, if not in the months ahead, the rest of our lives? So if you would, let me invite you wherever you are here in the room or online to stand with us in honor of God's word. And let me remind you, the reason we do that is to acknowledge the presence of God in this place and the holiness of his word. And so we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's start with verse 8. And we will continue reading in that chapter. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to anything we've done, our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which has been given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident to us through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald or a messenger, an apostle, a teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. But I'm not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard what he has entrusted to me until that day. So hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. Hold on to the gospel that you've heard from me, and do it in faith and love that are both found in Christ Jesus. 
And guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Verse 15. You know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when this man was in Rome, he diligently searched for me, and he found me. May the Lord grant that this man obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Instead, share in the gospel. Share in the sufferings of the gospel and hold on to the patterns and the teachings that you've heard from me because the Lord will be faithful to pass it on to others through you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is in this place and it is in this moment that we give you our worship, which is our response to you for who you are and for what you've done for us. I pray that the church at Avenue South would continue to look like the New Testament church that we see in Ephesus and that we see in these letters from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. And for the man or woman who is in this room who needs to be built up and encouraged, would you unleash by the power of your Holy Spirit the gospel ability to bring hope and change lives and futures. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a pen with you or if you have a journal with you and you keep notes or you write in the margins of your Bible, there's two things I want you to walk away with today. There's two things I want you to be mindful of today. And here's the first one. Biblical community. Biblical community. Relationships. Christ-centered community. Being in groups. Being in community with one another is where you find the strength to face what's in front of you. It's where you find the strength, the stamina, the ability to face what's in front of you in a way where on your own you may do well some of the time, but in community with others on a foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you find the strength that you don't have on your own to face what's in front of you. Listen, a couple of times Paul mentioned in here that he was suffering. One of the things we know about this letter is that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in a place called Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, right there on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East. He's writing to Christians in Turkey, but he's writing from Rome where he was imprisoned. There's some debate about whether or not it was house arrest and he was locked up in his house or whether he was literally in a jail cell, but he has been arrested for proclaiming that there is only one God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus made that claim. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man gets to God. No one receives eternal life. No one finds heaven and the reality of life after this life, abundant life, apart from me. And there were many in Rome, especially Caesar and others, who didn't appreciate that you might actually be saying that there's only one way to eternal life. It was deemed intolerant. It was deemed offensive. As many of us maybe see that playing out, not only in the years before, but in the years now and the years ahead, that to proclaim that Jesus is the one true way might not be the most popular message for many. Peter, a follower of Jesus, said that when we share about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should do it with gentleness 
and kindness. So let's make sure we're always doing it that way, but it may offend people. And Paul found himself imprisoned because he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice something that's mentioned in these first few verses. Paul references, as he writes to Timothy in Ephesus, that Timothy was dealing with some shame. Timothy was dealing with shame. How do we know that? Well, he says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Shame is somewhat of a consistent thread. I wouldn't say it's the prominent message in Paul's letters to Timothy, but shame is mentioned in 2 Timothy four times. Four times. Now, shame is an interesting thing because shame can be an incredible motivator. There have been times in my life I can remember when I finished playing college football and I spent about 10 years not really doing any exercise because I felt like I I was up all the time, I was in the weight room all the time, I was trying to eat the right things, I'm done with that. But 10 years later and realizing it's not going to get any easier to take care of myself physically, I really better do something about my physical well-being. And this past month, I went for my annual physical to the doctor, and he said, you're not in your 20s anymore. You're not in your 30s anymore. You're in your 40s. And I'm like, should I feel old? Like, I'm at the bottom rung of Gen X, but like, should I feel old? What are you telling me? He's like, now is the time to make some of those changes so you're ready in your 50s, your 60s, and hopefully your 70s. Shame over not accomplishing some of those things. I was so glad I was wearing a mask so he couldn't see my shame. Shame was so motivating in that moment. I've got to eat better. I've got to get back to exercise. I've gone through some of those seasons in my life. It it can be an incredible motivator in a redemptive way. Shame can also be a powerful hindrance to any type of productivity in our life. Shame can also be an incredible hindrance to any productivity in our life. How many of us, when I say that right now, you immediately think of something you're ashamed of? Right? Like how many of us, when we hear a sermon, you think, you think of something, maybe a decision or an action or something that happened to you and we're shamed by it. Listen, we're not going to dwell on that right now, but it, it's incredibly powerful. And the reason I tell you, if you've ever felt that way, if you feel that way now, Timothy, that's why we read scripture. We don't have to prop it up to make it relevant. It is relevant and applicable. Timothy was dealing with some sort of shame. Now, what we know is that there was some sort of shame for Timothy being a young pastor associated with pronouncing the gospel. He tells Timothy, don't be ashamed to pronounce the gospel. And in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he said, listen, I know the cross, like the finished work of Jesus on the cross, looks like foolishness to a lot of the world. We worship a man who allowed himself to be crucified, but he's not just a man, he's God. And so therefore, he was raised from the dead, victory over sin, death, and hell at the resurrection. But to many, it might seem then and now like, how could you worship someone who allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and didn't defend himself when people laughed at him, spit at him, made fun of him, told him, if you really are God, come down. And listen, one of the most beautiful things about Jesus, one of the most incredible qualities of Jesus that God has given to us in Christ is humility. The fact that he would allow himself in humble sacrifice to us to be crucified so that we might find eternal life. And that by receiving his offering of his reputation and his righteousness, we can be redeemed, we can be restored, we can be made new again. That doesn't seem crazy. That seems incredibly merciful, incredibly gracious. That's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus would allow himself to go through that on our behalf. But to some people, that looked silly. And in the first century, people thought Timothy, most likely, some people thought he was silly. And there were times he wanted to shrink back and not be not be vocal about his faith. Anybody feel that way? 
Anybody ever tempted not to say, I'm I'm a follower of Jesus, or let me tell you what Jesus has done for me? Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. So there was a tendency to be ashamed of the gospel, but there might also be a tendency that, like, I, I, I was with Paul. I hung out with Paul. Paul's arrested. Paul's in jail. Like, nobody in that day and age really went to visit people in jail, which is why when Jesus came, he pronounced, I'm here to set the captives free. And to unchain what binds the prisoners. Many people didn't go see those who were in prison. There was a shame and an embarrassment, like a family member. Paul, this, this is Timothy. Paul's like a, a, a gospel church family uncle and older gentleman in the church has poured into him. And now he's got to go visit him in jail. There might have been some shame associated with it, but Paul says, listen, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It may seem like foolishness to the world, but we know that it has the power to save people and change their lives forever. And in verse 11 that we just read a moment ago, Paul says, this is what I was appointed to do. So instead, share with me in this suffering. Share with me in this suffering. Now listen, one of the most important things that Paul is communicating to Timothy is if you feel embarrassed, if you're struggling with shame, if there's something going on in your life, don't do it alone. Share with me. Let's do this thing together. And one of the realities of Scripture that we see here is that biblical community, Paul and Timothy, Paul's a pastor, writing to a young pastor, but I mentioned this last week, they were friends. There was a generational gap, one generation to the next, but they were friends. They hung out together. They broke bread together. And lots of times, men don't form relationships. Men have to have relationships forged where they're galvanized and bonded to one another. And he is writing this as a man who is friends with Timothy. And he says, we're in this together. In other words, you're not alone in this. And how many times do we need people around us to say, you're not alone in this, we're in this together, so that you can stand up and be strong in what it is that God's called you to do, what it is that God's called you to face. Listen, last month, many of us know that we, we lost one of our civil rights leaders in the United States, a gentleman by the name of John Lewis. John Lewis served in the U.S. House of Representatives for nearly 30 years. If you don't know John Lewis in his older age, you might know this picture of John Lewis. He's standing here in this raincoat as he walks over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement. I've been to Selma. I've been on this bridge a couple of times, and I have walked over this bridge and and tried to, in some small way, appreciate what, what these women and these men who were standing up for the dignity and the worth of all individuals might have felt, and what they might have seen as they're walking across the bridge, there were police officers and law enforcement waiting there to stop them from drawing attention to the dignity and the worth of all people. Now listen, the civil rights movement is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a political thing when I talk about it. Listen, racial unity is a gospel-centered issue. The gospel teaches us that men, women, children, all people from every background are created in the image of God and deserve dignity and value and respect. One of the things that we need to be grateful for is that John Lewis was instrumental in the Nashville lunch counter sit-ins. If you were an African-American, you could not eat at the lunch counter up to the early 60s in Nashville. And he not only went to Fisk and graduated from Fisk and American Baptist Theological Seminary, where he got a degree in philosophy and theology... But he also helped lead a nonviolent sit-in movement, which led to men and women of color being treated with the same rights and privileges to some extent at that time 
that whites and others experienced. He was a hero. He was a leader in our city. But you never see, I, I don't, I rarely ever see a picture of him by himself. I rarely ever see a picture of him. Can you show that second picture? Most of you are more familiar with the gentleman in the middle, which is Dr. Martin Luther King. You, you see on the far right of this picture, there's, there's John Lewis. On the far left of this picture is Ralph Abernathy. For those of you who are familiar with the civil rights movement, they're holding arms. They're locked together. Now, the reason I'm illustrating this is you know this. They were facing what had to seem like insurmountable odds. But to do what was right and to do what was biblical and God-honoring in a way that drew attention to the dignity and worth of others, they locked arms and they stood together. We need to be together in community when we face whatever it is that's in front of us, especially things that are daunting and overwhelming or things that we are embarrassed about facing. Had a conversation recently with one of our members who is 20 plus years sober and serves as a sponsor in AA and mentioned to me when somebody's going through the shame and the embarrassment of recovery, he tells them, you're not alone in this. We'll do this together. We'll do this together. Now, you may never be a pastor. You may never be a worship minister. You may never feel called to be an usher or a greeter, but if you are recovering from some addiction, you, you represent hope to people who want to know they are not alone. And your role in ministry is just as important as anyone who stands up on this platform. When you honor God by reminding people it's in community, it's in relationship that we find the strength to lock arms with one another and to face what's in front of us. But lest you think I'm telling you that it's just what we can give to one another is the secret sauce, it's not. Did you notice what Paul said? The way that you lock arms and that you endure what's ahead of you is you rely on the power of God. You rely on the power of God. We not only have each other, but we have the presence of the risen Jesus, the Holy Spirit, which gives us the ability to do what we do not have and cannot do on our own. Paul says, you have the Holy Spirit available to you. Not only has God saved us in verse 9 and called us with a holy calling, but he's made this evident through the person of Jesus Christ. So hold on to the gospel and do it together. Hold on to the power of the gospel that Jesus being raised from the dead means that you and I can have new eternal life. That's hope giving. That's life changing. That we are saved and brought into relationship with God, but we are in community and relationship with one another, and we don't have to do this thing alone. You've heard this from pastors probably. If you've watched or listened to a podcast, you've watched a sermon online, you've ever heard any pastor talk about community, that none of us were created to live as individuals. We're, we're never referred to in Scripture as the individuals of God. If you find that, come show me, and I will confess right here next week, I was totally wrong. We're not the individuals of God. Paul says, hold on to the pattern that you've seen me and heard from me. Remember, they were in close community. And so now, I don't, I mean, I'm walking over here, like Paul's over here, Timothy's over here, Paul's in Rome, Timothy's way over there, thousand miles, hundreds of miles away in Ephesus. And he's saying, even though I'm not with you, there's something that's been shaped and formed in you by us being together. And the foundation of our relationship and the foundation of our conversations and what we want for one another and what we encourage for one another and what we grieve with one another is built on the promises of God. There's been something that's been formed in you that you're going to be able to do what God calls you to do. Even now, standing alone in this church, Paul wasn't by himself, or Timothy wasn't by himself, but he might have felt that way. Now, the interesting thing about the word pattern there that's in verse 13 
Pattern there can be translated a couple different ways. One of the ways to translate it is that pattern is like when an architect sketches out something on paper before they put it into the digital software, before you see blueprints rolled out, kind of like a sketch, a pattern. But a word that really, a word that really might emphasize more of what that word means in, in the first century is the way this Greek word was interpreted was like a hoof print of, ho- of horses that go over the same route and they keep pressing down and the imprint of their hooves thousands, if not millions of times, put an impression in the, in the soil, in the dirt. It's like over and over and over again, there's been something that's been impressed, there's been an imprint that's been made and formed that didn't exist before, but it happened over a long period of time with repeated imprints. Now listen, several years ago, we, we took our family out west. We, uh, we were going to go see um, Yellowstone. I don't, know how many of you go, I don't know how many of you are watching Yellowstone on the Paramount Channel, uh, like with Kevin Costner. Like, but if you haven't been to Yellowstone, you can watch that show. But like, we went to Yellowstone, and on the way out there, I told Amy, like, this, this is like kind of where the Oregon Trail was. I want to go out, like, I want to see where the Oregon Trail was. And so like, it was unreal. There was somebody making their way out there in this wagon, and these were, no, I'm just kidding. There was nobody in this wagon. Those are not real cattle, okay? But like, you can go. This is Scott's Bluff in northwestern Nebraska. This is Scott's Bluff. If you want to ask me, like, why is it Scott's Bluff? Well, good old Scott was was one of these travelers. Scott sat down at the foot of this. He was worn out. He was tired. Scott closed his eyes, and he never woke up. So this is called Scott's Bluff right here, okay? A little discouraging, but let's move right along, okay? This is Scott's Bluff, Nebraska, and this is where the Oregon Trail walks right by there, okay? Now, we drove up to the top of this bluff and looked down. And, and what's really historic, what was really fascinating to me, I love history, I was a history minor in college. What's fascinating to me is from the top, you can literally, this was in the 1800s, that so many settlers went out west. You can see the ruts of the wagon wheels in the ground. In some places, they're three and four feet deep, and they're still there where hundreds, if not thousands of wagons. Now, one wagon over, over the ground, it, it stirs up a little dust, right? Two wagons, three wagons, multiplying that times thousands. It forms ruts or impressions in the landscape that show you this is the path, this is the way, it's tried, it's tested, it's true. Paul says, hold on to the gospel that you've seen me pattern for you. You've seen me model for you. I impressed it upon your heart so often and so many times and in so many various ways that it's shaped who you are. And biblical community is where the gospel is imprinted upon our lives. It's in biblical community where over long periods of time in relationship with women and men who are on the same spiritual journey that we are, Find the formation of the gospel taking root in our lives. How many of us walked an aisle or prayed the prayer of response? We confessed our sin. We repented of ourselves and trusted Jesus, but nothing. If we're honest, and I asked you to chart out your life, and you could draw a little X on the timeline where you came to faith in Christ, like you don't feel maybe any more joy. You don't feel any more equipped to do what God's called you to do. For many Christians in North America, we gave our life to Jesus Christ, but nothing changed after that because we remained individuals who were saved. But we didn't go all in on biblical community where the life-changing power of the gospel can be imprinted, can be impressed, where the Holy Spirit can put a pattern into our lives of hopefulness and excitement and the equipping and the confidence that when Paul says, you've got this, and you know why? Because you've seen it in me. 
And I called it out and encouraged you in biblical communities where many of us need to have other people say, I see what God's doing in you when you can't see it in yourself. In college, I had men that were football coaches that said, I, I was a mess. And they said, you, you're pretty close. If you ever figure this out, if you really surrender to Jesus Christ, you, you're on the threshold of such incredible purpose-filled opportunities. We, we need people in our lives. That's where many of my relationships were forged. We, we need those people to do that for us, and it's in biblical community. Listen, you were not intended to be alone. You were not intended to journey through life by yourself. And it's in biblical community where we find the confidence to face what's in front of us. It's in biblical community where the gospel and the life-changing power of Jesus can be impressed upon us. And here's why this matters. The reason it mattered for Timothy was what was at stake in the future. I don't know if you remember last week, but Paul said, hey, your grandmother was a follower of Jesus. And she imprinted that pattern on her daughter. And then her daughter, which is your mom, impressed that upon you. And guess what we're going to read next week? Paul's going to say, you've got to run tell somebody about this. You've got to go share it with others. We're talking four generations. We're talking over a century's worth of human history of seeing people's lives change. Paul knows what's at stake. It's in you. You've seen it. Now's the time. Here you go. How many of us feel ill-equipped to do what God's called us to do? And we feel scared or nervous because we don't, we don't feel we have the strength to do it. We need one another, but we need the power of the gospel reminding us what God's called us to do. Listen, next Sunday, August 23rd, we are going to have a group connect emphasis here at the church. If you are on our email distribution list, tomorrow you will receive an email from our discipleship minister, Hunter Melton. He will be sharing information about how to get connected to a life group, how to get connected to a Bible reading group, or how to get connected to a mentor relationship where you can be encouraged and strengthened and built up for what God's put in front of you. And in the process of that, you can see your life transformed and the gospel impression on your life in a way that God says, now, let's partner together in changing the world in the next generation. Next Sunday is Gospel Connect. I want you to be praying about that. If you're not in a group, Hunter's going to be emphasizing that from the platform next Sunday. You're going to see it here. If you're joining us online, there are virtual groups. We had more people in virtual groups than we ever had in-person groups throughout the months of March and April. God's doing something in our church. But maybe you're still walking by yourself, and you have not responded not only to the gospel, but maybe you have. You're just not in biblical community with others, and you need to be. And one of the most important things in this text is that Paul says that Jesus has died for us and he has broken the bonds of death and brought life and immortality to light through the power of the gospel. 